Hey, this is Kate Nocera, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. We're back with our summer series where we're bringing you episodes every other week featuring a deep dive interview with someone we think you'll find interesting. So this week, I sat down and chatted with Congressman Jim Himes. He represents Connecticut's 4th District and also serves on the House Intelligence Committee. If you look up at CNN, he's one of those guys talking a lot about the Russia investigation. But he also happened to play a particularly big role in the House campaign arm in 2016. He was a supporter of Hillary Clinton. But I wanted to talk to him a little bit about what went wrong and what it's like being in the minority party in Congress right now. We also talked quite a bit about the current Russia investigation and generally the how things are going on the Hill. Finally, we recorded this interview at 2 p.m. on Monday, and I'm telling you that because by the time you listen to this, who knows what could have happened. Hi, Congressman Himes. Kate, how are you? I'm all right. Good. I'm going to remind you of something that happened before the election. You and I spoke a little bit, and I wrote an article about how Democrats don't really have a plan if Donald Trump is elected president. And you said, uh, my initial reaction was that it would be a total disaster to have a man with a fourth grade knowledge of the Constitution running the country. Congress would be forced to have a watchful check and balance on the guy. In particular, we'd need to reclaim war-making authority. And I suspect many Republicans would join us in doing that. Now we're a couple months into the Trump presidency. Are you satisfied, A, with the plan that you have now, and B, do you think that this idea of reclaiming war-making authority will go anywhere? Yeah, gosh, I, 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 stand, I stand by uh, pretty much everything I said before the election, um, although maybe the fourth grade understanding of the Constitution was a little optimistic, as okay. was my belief that, uh, you know, Republicans would join us in sort of standing up. But not not entirely, right? I mean, there have been some senators of real courage who, when the president has really stepped over the line, have, have, have stood up. Uh, and here in the House, um, it happens mainly behind closed doors, but there's a lot of Republicans who have a great deal of unease with this, uh, uh, with this president. They're just, you know, they're just sort of afraid of being singled out the way some of them have been uh, by the president. This is a time when people are thinking about maybe running primaries, and some of these guys come from districts where a primary from a Trumpista against them would be a real, uh, would be a real issue. So, um, you know, no, look, I, I went through about a week of, uh, you know, sort of stay under your bed kind of depression after the election, um, and then I realized I sort of had this moment of epiphany where I thought, you know, my my job's not going to be fun. We're mm-hmm. not going to get a lot of things that I think are important for the American people done. But in as much as Congress is a check and a balance on the president, boy, is this job important now? So on about day eight, I climbed out from under my bed and you know really <laughs> felt like really felt a sense of mission. You know, I mean, this isn't just a democratic mission. This is hey, you know, we don't castigate the media, we don't castigate federal judges, we don't you know make yeah. fun of immigrants, kind of uh, kind of stuff. To that to that point, like you are on the intelligence committee that is investigating, you know, potential Russian interference with the 2016 election and all all the other issues that kind of come with that. I mean, did you ever, did you kind of ever imagine in your career that that is what you would be spending a good chunk of your time doing? 
I certainly didn't predict it. And I think the scope of the Russian interference in the election was 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 really kind of breathtaking. Yeah. I also think our response to it was not adequate. Um, and, and look, I want to be careful on the issue of, you know, collusion and the president's involvement. On the one hand, you know, as his son admitted in releasing the emails, there clearly was uh, linkages. Uh, there clearly were linkages between Russians and the, and the campaign. You know, whether that rises to the level of a crime, what we should take away from that. I think the investigation needs to needs to move forward as it as it is. But, uh, you know, just the sheer audacity of Putin's meddling in our election was 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 pretty uh, was pretty stunning. And no, I'm not sure I would have predicted that it uh, that I would have spent the, next, the six months that follow uh, so focused on something which, you know, at, at one level, it's important. We got to make sure it doesn't happen again. On the other hand, from the standpoint of actually moving the country forward, whether it's on, you know, infrastructure, which is important to my district uh, or other issues, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of too bad that we're forced to spend so much time on this issue. Do you have any sense of being able to move forward? on any other issue like like do you see that possibility on the horizon i mean obviously you guys are in the minority party like a lot of the stuff that you would want to do you can't but do you see an end in sight to any of it <laughs> and this is like the what's the light at the end of the tunnel yeah. right yeah um, what is it um well so you know i'm by nature an optimist so uh, you, you know on the one hand it's I, I i i sort of you know after a beer or a glass of wine you know sort of entertain this notion of a totally alternate reality that we're not living but it's an alternate reality where right after the inauguration the president comes out and says okay this is a pretty tough election. We're pretty polarized. Uh, transportation infrastructure, I promised it. $1 trillion plan. It's coming out next week. This is yeah. something that Democrats and Republicans can get behind. You know, instead, we went the opposite way. We went to health care, which is not a policy issue here in Washington. It's a religious issue, right? I mean, it's just, you know, for seven years, the Republicans promised a repeal, you know, and, and subsequently learned in the last six months that that's actually a really bad idea. Yeah. You know, they've come head to head with reality. It's inflamed partisan tensions. So, you know, there is this whole other world where we open up with a bipartisan thing and the president gets a big win, probably beating up some of his more, you know, fiscally conservative people to get a big transportation bill passed. Um, but, uh, you know, we're not in that world where, you know, the, the White House's numbers have done nothing but gone down since uh, the inauguration day. Um, but, you know, again, if you're me, you still hold out hope that this guy could wake up one morning and say, hey, I need a big win here. We're going to do infrastructure. I promised a trillion dollars. You know, health care was a disaster. You know, tax reform is going to take a long time. We need some big wins. And my hope is that we go to that place where I think you could get a lot of bipartisan support. Yeah. When you when you go home to your district uh, and like people talk to you about, you know, what they want Congress to be doing, is it is it Russia? Is it investigating the president? You what know, even it? in my district, you know, like the rest of the country, there's a there's a lot of diversity in my district. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Trump lost my district by 20 points. So my district actually is a place where people are very, very concerned day to day yeah. with the president and the president's behavior. It's a very educated, very affluent district. It's a district where two profoundly Republican towns that I could never as a Democrat win. I'm, I'm talking about Darien and New Canaan. Darien and New Canaan, as you know, I mean, you know, Republicanism is, a, is an article of faith in these two towns. They voted for Hillary Clinton. Right. Trump didn't win those towns. So I, I come from a place where people are very, including Republicans, are very, very concerned about Donald Trump. But nonetheless, you know, again, expect us to walk and chew gum at the same time and get some things done that are important to them. Yeah. Well, you last cycle, last congressional cycle, you were on the DCCC, the, the campaign arm for Democrats. Do you looking back now, what do you think went wrong? Like, what do you think you guys missed? Well, um, 
you know, in a presidential year, congressional elections are nationalized. Right. Frankly, any year, uh, uh, congressional elections get nationalized. They certainly got nationalized in a in a uh, Trump um, Clinton throwdown. Right. Two very yeah. unpopular people, uh, historically unpopular. Um, but, you know, uh, to a lot of people who should be voting Democrat by any rational calculation, I think some combination of not having a jobs message about being regarded as strident and angry and intolerant on social issues. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a big deal on, on having a message that probably doesn't help us on Second Amendment gun safety. I think we lost a lot of parts in this country, a, lots of, a lot of parts of this country that we traditionally win because of some combination of those things. What, what do you mean being too rigid on social issues? What do you mean by that? Well, just look at what our candidate was called people who maybe have concerns about transgender, about gay marriage, about all of the social issues. Deplorable. Now, I I, I know that Hillary Clinton meant uh, racists and bigots when she said that. But this is politics. This is the big leagues. When you say something like that, you can rest assured that it will it can and will be used against you. And, you know, even this goes back to Barack Obama, who, you know, in a private moment that, of course, became public, said, you know, he kind of characterized people who uh, you know, maybe aren't on the Acela uh, every day Clinging. by saying they cling to their guns and their religion, yeah. you know, and that's that is that's maybe one step removed from vilifying. It's certainly not understanding where those people are coming from. And you can't talk to people if you don't understand where they're coming from. And I, I do think, look, I, I think um, Connecticut was one of the very first states to go for marriage equality uh, on social issues. Uh, you know, I, I'm enormously proud of the Democratic Party for always being in the vanguard of standing up for these things. Um, but when it turns into making people who haven't gone quite as far down the path, who haven't sort of completed their journey on these issues, when it, when it comes down to speaking of them with derision uh, and, and, and vilifying them, of calling them deplorable, of suggesting that they're somehow bigoted or racist because they haven't completed their journey, that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, right now with with having Pelosi and Schumer out in Virginia or wherever they are, I think they're in like Berryville. Berryville. Berryville, Virginia. Is that helpful, having, having these two people who, you know, are seen as really socially liberal folks, one from San Francisco, one from New York City. They're the leaders of the Democratic Party. Like, does that help you guys with this message? Well, so um, I I guess my answer is, uh, you know, in a perfect world, uh, you know, if you were in, uh, you know, Ohio, Mm-hmm. Uh, would it be a coastal Democrat you would want delivering the message or would you want it to, to be Sherrod Brown or, or mm-hmm. you know, somebody who really understands the populace? But, but that's, that's the beauty of this. We're not running a presidential campaign in 18. We're running you know, 435 congressional campaigns and uh, what is it, 30, uh, 33 uh, senatorial uh, campaigns. Yeah. And so, you know, look, John Tester, <laughs> John Tester is going to take uh, his version of this agenda and channel it for Montana. I'm going to take my version of this message and channel it for Fairfield County, Connecticut. We're probably not going to use the same words. We're probably going to yeah. emphasize, but we're going to draw on this well of opportunity, of jobs, of trying to reconnect with people who feel pretty economically insecure right now. Why not just attack Trump? I mean, it seemed to work for Republicans for eight years, and Obama was just attack Obama, resist everything he did, you know, fight against him. And they, they, they won continually. (laughs) Well, like what, like, why not just do that? Well, uh, you know, that's a good question. Uh, And I think, I think there's a couple answers to that question. Number one, 
Um, most of us didn't come here just to just to be in a partisan war. Look, yeah. if, if this job consisted exclusively of beating up on Donald Trump or of opposing the Republicans, I'd go do something else. That's not interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of us who maybe have a little bit of idealism left in us like to think that, you know, this is really about painting a vision and, you know, doing the hard work of trying to of trying to implement it. So for a lot of us, it's just a question of sort of personal satisfaction and our vision of what politics is trying to achieve. Secondly, um, uh, you know, if you look at the way uh, the Republicans opposed Barack Obama, yes, they did it on policy. And I want to be caref- very careful about how I say this, because I'm not trying to say that Republicans are racists, uh, that they're bigots, but they absolutely, in certain populations, looked to activate that really ugly anti-immigrant uh, uncomfortable with racial equality tendency that does run through communities and parts of this country. Um, and that's more than just opposing Barack Obama. That is activating um, some residual but very, very powerful negative instincts in the American body politic. And uh, I, one of the reasons I'm a Democrat is because we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, we might stand up against Donald Trump, um, but we're not going to deep, reach deep into that cesspool of American history and say we're going to appeal to those people out there. And again, I want to say this very carefully. Republicans aren't racist or bigots, but they absolutely make an appeal to racists and bigots in this country uh, in a way that energizes them. And Democrats just aren't going to do that. Before we go on, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Congressman Jim Himes. We're back now with Congressman Jim Himes. Um, Can we go back to Russia for a second? Sure. What has been the most sort of surprising thing about being a part of this investigation? Well, I'm not particularly particularly surprised that the Russians did this. Um, You know, uh, if you understand Vladimir Putin, if you know the history of their interference in domestic affairs, it was audacious. It was really audacious. Uh, and Putin gambled that the uh, that the response would not be devastating, and he was right about that. Mm-hmm. Um, what is most surprising to me, um, quite frankly, has been just the staggering ineptitude with which the Trump people have dealt with this. Um, the right way to deal with a crisis like this, of course, is exactly the opposite of the way they dealt with it. The right way would have been on day one of this administration for, you know, wiser heads to have prevailed and said, oh, boy, this could be a six month, one year, 18 month story. It could really slow down our our agenda. So therefore, every single person in the White House, every single person affiliated with the campaign will come forward today with whatever contacts they had with any Russians and, and, and tell the whole story, put it out there. You know, you saw a glimmer of that instinct when Donald Trump Jr. finally, six months later, after denial after denial after denial of any contact with the Russians, put out his emails. Well, if that had happened on day one, you know, who knows? We, we don't know what's out there. Maybe some people would have been in trouble. But you know what? We This, this would have been a, a two or three month story. It would not have been an ongoing story. So this this the way the White House handled this Russia issue will go down for generations as, an, as a case study in how not to handle a, a, a political challenge. Have you been or have you been surprised by reaction of uh, Republicans to this, to the Russia investigation? I mean, that that they have not kind of stepped up in in a way. Well, 
I, I wouldn't characterize Republicans as a whole. I mean, on the Senate, you've seen some real courage from the usual characters, guys like Senators Graham and McCain and yeah. others. Um, you know, it's been sad to me that the Speaker, who after all is Speaker of the House, not Speaker of the Republicans, hasn't spoken with a clearer voice about this. Uh, but look, I'm working closely with Mike Conaway, who took over the investigation on the Republican side after Devin Nunes recused himself. Mike probably represents, you know, one of the top five most conservative districts in the country, and he's doing a superb job. That guy is as fair and as straight uh, and as and as good as they come. Uh, but, you know, we, it's, it, it has to some extent been sad. I'm also worried, you know, Mike Pompeo, CIA director, who I also consider a friend. We served on the committee together twice now. He's made statements which have sort of downplayed the seriousness of the mm -hmm. uh, uh, of the Russian attack, saying, oh, well, you know, what else is new or the Russians do this? No, no, no. This was us. This was unprecedented. And I've been a little disheartened that, you know, uh, that he and other Republicans have not been clearer about. Look, you can you can say that as I would say that this is an unacceptable attack on our democracy without necessarily compromising the validity of the president's victory. I'm willing to concede him that victory and not blame it on the Russians. So I just don't understand why they can't get to that point. Yeah. Do you think that you said, you know, the response was not really adequate while it was happening? What what more could have Barack Obama, who's then president, done so <laughs> should should there have been more? Said uh, there should have been more. And look, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking is an obnoxious right. thing to do. But let me tell you, if 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 I had been sitting in the Oval Office and you know, <laughs> that's what we do. Yeah, yeah right, right. Um, yeah. I I I would have done uh, two things. Number one. Um, I would have been very clear and upfront in real time about what was happening. The White House, I think, was concerned about affecting the election. It's almost always better to put things out there. I believe the American public, of course, it would have you know, gotten caught up in cable news, but the American public can handle the truth and deserves the truth. So I would have been much more upfront about what was happening in real time, which, by the way, might have uh, caused the Republicans to step back a little bit. But secondly, I, I think I would have been much more aggressive on, a, on an in-kind retaliation. You know, we're a lot better at hacking than the Russians are, far, far better. Better. You know, Scaramucci, who said that we wouldn't have known if the Russians had did baloney. You know, I know a lot more about this than Anthony yeah. does over the last uh, years on the uh, Intelligence Committee. And I don't quite know how I would have calibrated it, but I would have demonstrated our cyber capabilities to the Russians. It might have been, you know, by shutting down some sensitive systems. It might have been by exposing some uh, some very embarrassing information of Russian leadership. But I would have sent a shot across the bow that would not have been lost on Vladimir Putin. Yeah. The president was just too concerned that it would have looked like he was trying to help Clinton win. You know, you, I mean, he you, obviously was trying to help Clinton win. He wanted Hillary Clinton to win. Well, but, well but yeah, do you think but there was but, just too much the hesitancy to really get involved in there. Uh, I think I understand where they came from. Look, the ultimate conclusion of the intelligence community unanimous was that this was a hack designed to help Donald Trump. If the president, President Obama, at the end of his term during the campaign says that it's very badly received right. uh, by the right wing. I mean, you know, I remember the days when the right wing used to be concerned about presidential uh, misbehavior. You know, I, I constantly say that if uh, we had a President Clinton and Chelsea Clinton had taken that meeting with that group of Russians and lied about it. And only subsequently, you know, not only would we have impeachment underway right now, we'd have militias sitting outside the South Lawn. So there was a day when uh, when the Republicans really raised hell about presidential uh, misbehavior. And I think probably the last White House was, was very concerned about that reaction. Yeah. Is um, is there anything like fun or good happening up here? Because it seems like maybe no. 
<laughs> you know, um, I wouldn't put this in the category of fun or good, but, you know, we have been reminded in the last couple of weeks, uh, a couple of times, but, uh, uh, to, to, to not let our, ourselves be consumed by the partisan fight. And of course, I'm referring first to the wounding of Steve Scalise, which mm -hmm. caused us all to say, whoa, you know, uh, we really got to remember that our rhetoric, the tone we use can sometimes activate some people to do some really awful things. And then, of course, Senator McCain's um, uh, brain cancer. Again, it's another reminder Neither that we're human beings. Good. Neither are, are fun or good. In the fun or good category, I would have to uh, uh, include uh, the fact that uh, hopefully we'll be back in our districts in August. I don't even <laughs> and know. And out of this 105 degree. Well, you know, uh, my, my guess is that a lot of that depends on what happens this week with health care. If the Senate manages to get something through, all bets are off. But... I have like five employees that scheduled vacation for the first <laughs> week in August that are all going to be really, really mad if if it gets canceled. Yeah. You know, fortunately, as you know, senators and members of Congress never schedule vacation. So <laughs> we'll, we'll be here at our desk regardless. But I, I mean, I, I am afraid. I am exhausted every time I get, you know, an alert on my phone or there are 10 news stories at night or like trying to figure figure out what reporters on the Hill are going to ask about the next day. Cause there's just so much. I just, is it hard to stay focused for you guys too? Is that, is that something that you experience? Like, do you have like freak outs when the New York times push alert comes through? Well, uh, number one, uh, when the push alert comes through, I always think, oh, my gosh, how far ahead is the Times or the Post? Uh, uh, <laughs> how far ahead of the congressional investigation are they this time? Because, of course, they broke the story about yeah. Donald Trump Jr. Uh, this Did you morning, guys not know about the, the email? Uh, the Don Jr. email? I didn't know about the Don Jr. email. Um, Until... This morning, Kushner confirms the Washington Post story of months, uh, a couple months ago that he had asked for some kind of secret or special line of communication to the Russians. So yeah, every time I open the newspaper, I think, what do these guys know that I don't? Because the answer to that question is often, they know a lot. But you know, for all of us here on the Hill... Um, you know, this is the first time, I think, in American history where where no member of Congress, Democrat or Republican, really has any idea who the president is going to be that day. You know, is it going to be the guy who's sort of focused on making in America and, you know, gets a bunch of CEOs and sits in a truck that was made in America? Or is it the guy who decides, you know, to light up, you know, as he did, uh, you know, uh, Adam Schiff and call call a respected member of Congress sleazy? Um, you know, we just none of us know who the president is going to be moment to moment. It was a, it was a big big day for a new nickname sleazy chef crying <laughs> crying chuck sleazy chef which is pretty funny because i mean you know anybody who's ever been within 10 feet of adam schiff knows that you can put a number of adjectives on him but sleazy is not one that would yeah. uh, that would ever make the list it was a little sad there wasn't alliter alliteration with uh, jeff sessions he was beleaguered 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 ag um have you met the president have you had have you had occasion to spend time with him i i've i've never met the president um and you know it's a source of some concern i again i sort of maintain this hope that there comes a moment particularly on transportation infrastructure where we could all get together and hammer out a deal and i i worry about that phone call that says you know will you will, will you come come to the white house for yeah. to talk about transportation you know on the one hand critical to my constituents that i play ball you know on the other hand the last thing i want to do is you know uh, have a photo op standing behind the <laughs> we saw we saw how the uh, heads of all of the uh, you know historically black colleges were used in that Oval Office photo op. So it's something that I that I that, that we worry about here. But you know, look, this is this is an exercise in in you know keeping my head in the game. Not yeah. you know, as you pointed out earlier, you know, I can ruin my day by dwelling too long on the five tweets at six fourteen a.m. You know, that just that. That's my everyday, <laughs> Congressman. It's <laughs> it's yeah. exhausting. 
Nelson, you know, you wake up and you see what what the president of Sweden, and that's how that's how the trajectory of your day is going to go. Yeah, no, and I mean, a lot of these tweets are sort of ridiculous on the face of it, but uh, you know, when I when even when you step back and say. You know, you could you could regard this as ridiculous, the whole fake news thing as ridiculous. Or you could say, you know what, this is actually part of a concerted effort to create yeah. a world where all facts are subject to negotiation and dispute. You know, this is a world where, you know, none of us want to be, you know, where where truth is arguable, where no, nothing is certain. And, you know, he's clearly been on a campaign to make that world come true. Have you talked to any, I mean, just privately in your conversations with Republicans about that piece of it, you know, the attacks on the press, not to be self-centered about it, but, you know, the attacks on news and the fake news, notion of fake news. I mean, have they expressed any concern about this world that's kind of being built up? Yeah, they look, privately. You don't have to. Yeah, name no. Names. They is a look. They, you know, the Republican conference in the House is a diverse group, right? Yeah. And so here's my analysis. You know, you've got 30 or 40 true believers, people who are going to stand up for Donald Trump no matter what. You know, you see him on TV. Chris Collins of New York, a bunch of others. You know, who are just out there, regardless of what the president says, they will justify it. Uh, there are some vocal uh, skeptics. Uh, we hear a lot the word disturbed. We hear the word concerned. There are people who fall into that category, and the vast majority of Republicans and this is to their credit, well, I guess it's partial, they get partial credit, are very, very concerned. They just may not be so in public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but just privately, they're saying yeah. that. Yeah, look, and yeah. I get politics, right? I mean, yeah. even though the president, his tweet notwithstanding, he underperformed most House Republicans in their district. Even though that's true, they worry about what might happen if the president lights them up and attracts a primary opponent. Yeah. All right. Congressman Himes, thank you so much for sitting down with No One Knows Anything. Appreciate it. Just a reminder, we're officially in summer series mode, and that means we're airing episodes every other week that feature a deep dive interview with someone we hope you find interesting. So we're off next week, but we'll be back the week after, August 11th, with an interview. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer, Eleanor Kagan, and Agaranesh Ashagre. The show is edited by Catherine Miller. Production support comes from Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Pill. You can find us on Twitter at Kate Nocera and at C. Warzel. <laughs>